This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This card tells me that you're ready to embark on a brand new journey. It's not only with your love relationship, but in your life as well. So it's time to take a next step and move forward. I love that. That is fascinating. I'm here at Urban Psychic in San Diego getting my tarot read by psychic Amy Johnson. Amy, thank you. This is great. And it's been a fascinating morning. I enjoy this stuff. Always have. And yes, I'm a believer. You may well ask, though, what on earth I'm doing here today and how this location connects with the opera we're going to talk about today. Well, the opera deals with another person who believed in psychics and had an obsessive interest in the occult. He was the king of Sweden from 1771 to 1792. To put that in a musical context, he was just 10 years older than Mozart and died in the same year. He was a learned, highly cultured young man whose vast reading of the French literature of the time made him quite unusual in court circles. He's noted as having brought Sweden, a relative backwater, into modern times. He was a rather good dramatist and actor, and in fact, he built some wonderful theaters and not only established the Swedish Royal Theater, but the Royal Swedish Opera and the Royal Swedish Ballet, all of which still exist. But Gustav III was also interested in the occult, and indeed all of Royal Sweden was fascinated with a woman of noble birth named Madame Ulrika Arvidsson. Madame Arvidsson mostly did her work by reading coffee grounds, and she had a reputation for never being wrong. In 1786, the king himself sought her out, traveling in disguise to the rather seedy neighborhood where she lived. She made her predictions for both the king and his companion, and finally ended the reading by telling the king, Beware of the man with a sword you will meet this evening. He aspires to take your life. The king's companion dismissed the psychic's predictions, but the king believed them completely. And later on that night, yep, climbing up the stairs into the palace, they met the man with the sword, Adolf Ludwig Ribbing, who turned out to be one of the men who was later involved in the plot to assassinate the king. Now, if this all seems perfect for the plot of an opera, you're absolutely right. In fact, Two brilliant composers used the assassination of Gustav III as the basis for important operas. The first being the French composer Daniel Aubert, whose opera Gustave Troisième took Paris by storm in 1833. Twenty years or so later, a very important Italian composer, influenced by Aubert's libretto, decided to do his own setting of the story, and that brings us to our subject today. The opera... A Masked Ball, Un Ballo in Mascara, by Giuseppe Verdi. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. We're here at Addison, the five-star restaurant at the Grand Del Mar Resort, a place where an 18th century royal would probably be quite comfortable. 
No better place to talk about Gustav III, the King of Sweden, from 1771 to 1792. This nephew of Frederick the Great of Prussia was born into opulence to the Swedish royal family in Stockholm, 1746. But the royal family held very little power at this time. The real power was wielded by the so-called Swedish estates and a parliamentary system that was corrupt. From early on, Gustav was quite vocal about the abuse of power that many of the nobles perpetrated against the people. And he took it into his mind to be a reformer king. But like other noble reformers, for example, his exact contemporary, Joseph II, the Emperor of Austria, his attempts at reform never quite jived with his determination to be, well, an absolute ruler. The phrase benevolent despot probably suits Gustav better than just about any other ruler of the time. So by the time 1792 rolled around, he was hated by much of the aristocracy, the military, and members of parliament. It's no wonder, then, that conspiracies swirled around him, and they finally caught up with him at a masked ball held at the Opera House in Stockholm on March 16, 1792. Jakob Johann Ankerström, a former military officer who held the king in contempt and who was supported by a number of co-conspirators, came up behind the king at the ball and shot him in the back at point-blank range. Ankerström dropped his pistols and fled before the entrances and exits to the royal opera could be sealed, but he was captured the next day. The king didn't die immediately. He lingered for about 13 days. During this time, he played his greatest role, the benevolent dying king, putting on a calm, forgiving countenance to everyone who visited him in his final hours. So that's the story of Gustav III of Sweden. How much of this story actually appears in the opera by Giuseppe Verdi? Un ballo in mascara, a masked ball, didn't originate with Verdi, nor with the theater that was looking for an opera by Verdi, nor with the librettist Antonio Somma, who fashioned the text for the opera. In fact, the story of the making of this opera seems to be one of happenstance or accident, and it's amazing that the opera came to fruition at all. Verdi met the poet Antonio Somma in 1853, and immediately saw in him the possibility of a great collaboration with a recognized national poet who had written a number of successful dramas. A lengthy discussion began about a project that ended up unfulfilled, Verdi's heartfelt desire to set Shakespeare's play King Lear. In 1856, he was approached by the Teatro San Carlo in Naples with an offer to do just that, Re Lear. But Verdi was very particular about singers, and the casts that the theater offered him just didn't suit. He signed the contract anyway, hoping all would eventually come together. But it didn't, and time was wasting. So again, Verdi went looking for some kind of property, a play, a novel, an historical event that could be turned into an opera, and quickly. He decided on a previously produced operatic libretto written by the great French poet, 
Eugène Scribe, for the composer who single-handedly created French grand opera, Daniel Aubert. The opera was Gustave Troisième ou Le Bal Masqué. It was produced by the Paris Opera in 1833, and it didn't do all that well, though it did have a couple of revivals. Indeed, it was probably a somewhat scandalous venture, because the assassination of the actual King Gustav III had happened only 40 years before. There were certainly people involved in it who were still alive. The trouble with a masked ball began when Verdi sent the libretto to the Neapolitan censors for review. The story of a seated monarch's assassination, especially on stage in full view of the audience, was more than the representatives of the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies could bear. They demanded major changes to the libretto, including the demotion of the king to a duke, transfer of the time period to the pre-Christian era, genuine remorse on the part of the hero, and no use of a gun or firearm of any kind. In the meantime, Verdi was approached by the director of the Teatro Apollo in Rome, where the censors in the Papal States were, strangely enough, somewhat more lenient than those in Naples. In fact, they agreed to everything but the place, asking that the story be moved outside of Europe, to North America perhaps, while still under English rule. Verdi and Soma, by this point beside themselves with exasperation, I'm sure, agreed immediately. Until well into the 20th century, Unballo in Mascaro was set in 18th century Boston. The king now becomes a royal governor, a mere count named Ricardo rather than Gustavo. Ankerstrom becomes Renato, and Madame Arvidsson, the fortune teller, is simply Ulrika. It's interesting to note that before Verdi's death in 1901, the opera was performed on stages in countries where there would have been no problem at all reverting to the original time and place of late 18th century Stockholm and the court of Gustav III. But Verdi never demanded it change back and seems to have been perfectly satisfied with the outcome. In any case, the opera was successful and traveled to many cities throughout the world, including Boston, until the early 20th century when its popularity began to wane. With a return to the original libretto and setting in Sweden, Ballo seems to have taken on new life. It's now considered one of the top two or three operas by the Italian master and a piece that reveals more and more as you get to know it. The King of Sweden, Gustav III, scoffs at news from his advisor and friend, Count Ankerstrom, that conspirators are plotting against him. When the king hears that a woman who passes herself off as a fortune teller might be banished from the kingdom, he decides to disguise himself and visit the woman, and invites his entire court and staff to join him. At the home of Madame Arvidsson, the suspected witch, Gustav notices a servant of Amelia, Ankerstrom's wife, whom the king secretly loves. 
Gustav hides himself in order to observe Amelia, who admits to the witch that she loves a man who is not her husband, and that man is the king. She seeks peace from this love for her husband's best friend, and Madame Arvidsson advises her to go to the gallows at midnight and pick an herb that will stop her from loving Gustav. When Amelia leaves, a crowd arrives, and Gustav comes out from his hiding place. He asks Madame Arvidsson to read his palm. To the crowd's horror, she pronounces that Gustav will soon die by the hand of a friend. He laughs at the gullibility of the crowd, which is shocked at the prediction. Just prior to midnight, Amelia finds her way to the gallows. Gustav arrives, surprising her, and she begs him to leave before eventually admitting that she loves him. As Ankerstrom arrives to protect the king from conspirators, Amelia covers her face with a veil. Amelia and Ankerstrom convince Gustav to leave. The conspirators arrive and, realizing they've caught the wrong man, not the king, they ask the woman to remove her veil. Ankerstrom steps forward, willing to fight to protect the veiled woman's identity. But when a duel seems about to break out, Amelia steps forward, removing her veil. Furious that his wife was meeting with his friend the king in the middle of the night, Ankerstrom tells the men, see him at his home the next day. This mistaken meeting with Amelia and the king has put Ankerstrom on the path to his assassination of Gustav III. I've been wondering, as I often wonder about certain operas, what it is about Un Ballo in Mascara, a masked ball, that makes me love it so much, because it's really one of my top two or three favorite Verdi operas. And I've been asking myself, is it the story, is it the melodies, or is it the inexorable tragic ending? You know, just simply trying to pinpoint what it is that attracts me so much. Well, I'm definitely a person who's attracted by the auditory. Something's got to tickle my ear in order to attract me to a piece of music. So there's usually some purely musical factor, a vocal or orchestral color, a turn of musical phrase or something like that to hook me into the piece. Then once I'm hooked, I start digging more deeply to find the treasures that might be locked inside the score. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that for Ballo, it's the rhythmic character of the opera that brings me such joy every time I encounter it. Verdi's rhythmic impulses are unusual, catchy, driven, and perfectly chosen for the story he's trying to tell. Now consider, first of all, the story that Verdi has chosen to tell and something that he has to establish in the very first act when you meet most of the important characters. Where are we? In the Swedish royal court of the very real historical character, King Gustav III. So the scene has to be glittering and brilliant in order to match the surroundings of Gustav, who was a highly cultured, very intelligent ruler who patterned his palaces after the French palace at Versailles. Who is Gustav and how is Verdi going to characterize him? Well, he's young, he's polished, he's confident, he's passionate, and we discover very early on he's in love, big time, with a wife of one of his closest aides. So besides giving Gustav melodies or tunes that express all these things, Verdi goes a little deeper and gives Gustav, and frankly all the other characters in the court, distinctive rhythmic motives that express all of this. 
You can find perfect examples of this rhythmic vitality of the Swedish court in the very first bars of the opera, in the orchestral prelude. Listen to how Verdi begins this opera with two very distinctive rhythmic ideas. Now, rather than play them for you, I want you to hear the rhythm all by itself with no notes or pitches attached, simply the bare naked rhythm itself. Here goes. Bum, 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 da 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 da. Bum, 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 da 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 da. <laughs> Now, sound it out like that all by itself. It's really kind of an unusual rhythm to start a serious opera with, isn't it? Can you imagine what musical pitches Verdi is going to put to that rhythm? Probably not. So here you go. This is how the composer begins the opera with musical pitches dictated by that rhythm. Interesting, right? I imagine when I first heard this opera, and it wasn't in an opera house but on a recording, my ear was attracted by that unusual rhythm. It's only after those initial bars of music that we get something that's a bit more conventional, a bit more 19th century. Yeah, that sounds a bit more like a 19th century composer's idea of how to start an opera. But wait, I didn't play everything for you. Here is how Verdi ties those two ideas together the conventional business I just played for you, and that really unusual rhythm that began the prelude in the first place. Now that's Verdi. Begin with the unusual, bring in the conventional, and then tie the two ideas together. It's like he starts everything by challenging the ear, then making it comfortable, then challenging it again. And it creates a perfect gateway into the story he's about to tell. But, and there's always a but, after he's made this statement, he introduces a completely new and different rhythmic idea. It's a kind of martial or soldierly idea that goes like this. You can almost hear that rhythm being played by a snare drum, can't you? But Verdi has it played very, very quietly in the low string section, the cellos and basses. Here's that music that comes out of that initial rhythmic idea.
Now, in your imagination, it's probably easy for you to say that the first music we heard, that unusual rhythmic impulse, was indicative of the royal court of Sweden, and perhaps something of the character of the king. And the music you just heard as the music of the conspirators, the guys who are plotting against the king and who eventually succeed in assassinating him. And you'd be right. But today I'm only speaking musically and more to the point, rhythmically. And quite often it's through these rhythmic choices that Verdi makes us sort of sit up and pay attention. One more example is how this act ends, as the king and his court decide to go on a sort of field trip to visit a fortune teller and palm reader, Madame Arvidsson. She's been accused of fraud, and the court judge wants Gustav to send her into exile. But Oscar, the king's page, defends her. So Gustav wants to find out for himself what exactly is going on with this woman, and he summons the entire court to join him at her cave this very evening. This is going to be a lark, just for fun, and they'll all dress up in common clothes so that the witch won't know that they're royals out on the town for a little fun. Verdi sets this up with a rhythm that involves wonderful syncopations, accents on beats in unexpected places. Here's the music you hear as the king describes for his court what they're about to do. Isn't that wonderful, especially rhythmically? First of all, the melody itself is a kind of musical laughter. The melody steps down the scale very quickly, and it's marked allegro brillante e presto. That's a laugh. But the syncopations? Verdi could have used the same notes but without the accents, and it would have sounded something like this. But the composer purposely puts an accent where an accent is completely unexpected, and it changes the nature of the music completely. The conspirators join in immediately, giving us a bit of darkness to the ensemble. But then we return to brightness and syncopation again when Oscar the page enters, again with an accent in his music where we wouldn't normally expect it. And finally, when we all agree that this is just a terrific thing and they're all going to go to the witch's cave and have a great evening, they sing a kind of chorus that is absolutely full of syncopations and surprises, redolent of that rhythmic impulse for which Verdi is so justly famous. ¶¶ 
That's what first caught my ear when I heard a masked ball. And the opera is filled with that kind of rhythmic vitality from beginning to end. It's infectious. Here are a few recordings and DVDs to help you get to know this wonderful Verdi opera before you come to the theater. Resources that are guaranteed to provide fantastic performances by great artists. Here's one of my favorites. It includes tenor Placido Domingo, the phenomenal soprano Martina Arroyo, and baritone Piero Capuccilli under the baton of Riccardo Muti. Can you get any better? Well, let's try. Here's another classic with Luciano Pavarotti in fine fettle. Margaret Price, probably my favorite, Amelia and Renato Bruzon, all under the baton of Sir Georg Scholti. How about one more? This classic early stereo recording with Leontine Price, Carlo Bergonzi, and Robert Merrill under the direction of Eric Leinsdorf. Yeah, I think you can pretty much guess from this collection of classic CDs that A Masked Ball, Un Balu en Mascara, has been very well served on recordings. For DVDs, we have two that are especially brilliant. This one emanates from the Teatro Real in Madrid with Marcello Alvarez, Violetta Urmana, and Marco Vratonia with excellent production values and a classic period look. Jesus Lopez Cobos conducts. This one from the Teatro Reggio in Parma is quite good too, but with singers that are perhaps not as well known to us, even though they're really quite fine. Tenor Francesco Meli, soprano Kristen Lewis, and baritone Vladimir Stoyanov do the honors with Gianluigi Gialmetti conducting. Terrific look, wonderful sound. Out of these many resources, you'll find something to help you get to know Ballo better and appreciate it more in the theater. So that's it. One of my favorite Verdi operas is on our schedule and coming soon. An opera with passion, intrigue, and the brilliance of Swedish royalty all wrapped up with the impetuous and tuneful music of the great Giuseppe Verdi. A Masked Ball, Un Ballo in Mascara, is one of the truly great operas, and I know you won't want to miss it. That's it for me. I'm going to find out what the cards have in store. I'm Nick Ravellis, and I'll see you at the opera. Let's go, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's find out what this last card is. Ah, oh, there we go. <laughs> so. Oh, <yeah>. yes. <laughs> Maturity.
been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.